Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a sunny but cool day here in the capital is Emmy Scarterfield. Emmy is the founder and creative director of Emmy London, a designer of luxury bridal shoes, occasion shoes and bridal accessories. Um, Emmy, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very pleased to be here. It's such a pleasure for us as well, welcoming you onto the airwaves. Um, normally, we dive straight into the subjects of leadership on the show and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. Um, but just how has it affected you and your business, Emmy? Well, I mean, it has been pretty devastating, to be honest. It has obliterated a whole season. Our business um, demand is really driven by weddings and events. And of course, our business model is retail. So we're kind of hit on every front imaginable. Um, and it, in, historically, it is quite seasonal, as I said, by those um, events happening mainly in the summer. Um, so actually, we've missed the whole season. Um, so our our current state of affairs is is hit, but we're not we're not giving up, and we're certainly not in in gloomy um, state of mind at all. We have had some um, silver lining and some um, optimistic moments. Mm. We've certainly had to adjust um, how we do things, and I very much kind of processed that in almost like chapters of adjustment. Uh, we've had to streamline processes. Um, we've had to embrace technology and maximize, maximize opportunities that technology provides us and almost fast track projects that we had started talking about um, but have had to fast track almost sort of years in advance of when we thought it would be needed. Mm-hmm. One of those, and really I sort of put this down to our current survival is that we have pivoted our retail business from face-to-face bricks and mortar to virtual appointments, um, which I've been doing myself, um, which started very in a very rudimentary way from my studio room in my home during lockdown with actually a tripod that I've given my daughter for Christmas, um, which hence has broken and I've upgraded to a slightly more expensive model. Um, But I reached out to customers that still were planning weddings um, or just love shoes and hosted appointments in my studio room um, with a tripod on my phone. And and I have to say that has been hugely successful, really, really rewarding and actually opened up a whole new sales channel that isn't dependent on anyone traveling. And of course, there's no barrier to those customers because I can speak to anyone in the world 
via my phone. Um, and so that's been really, really lovely and, and really the key to our success and survival. It's certainly encouraging that there have been some positives to come out of this period, particularly with regard to sort of how you pivoted and embraced technology ahead of time yeah. to just keep things ticking yeah. over. I can imagine you've also yeah. learned an awful lot from having to um, implement these new strategies as well. Um, Absolutely. And I think on a personal level, it's been really rewarding because mm. my role as creative director has evolved into a very um, broad role overseeing lots and lots of projects and lots of areas of the business, which obviously is necessary. But push come to shove in times like these, I've really had to focus and I'm much, much more engaged with um, the customers, the product. And actually, I've rediscovered what I really love doing and what I'm good at. And can you see sort of this way of working being much more commonplace in the future, not just for your business, but also just for the sector as a whole and bricks and mortar retail moving more decisively toward that online delivery, just out of necessity now more than anything, because consumer confidence, even maybe in one or two years time when hopefully there's a vaccine and the virus itself is no longer an issue, consumer confidence might be down a little bit just because of the ongoing anxiety that will be there as a result of all of this. I mean, I think there's just definitely been a shift of people's confidence buying online or virtually. So I think this, certainly for our businesses and businesses like ours, this virtual avenue will be something that they perfect during this time, but definitely keep in their sales channel as a long-term kind of offer. Um, I think it would be sad to say that bricks and mortar won't be relevant. Um, You're always going Mm. to have that customer that wants to have that look and feel experience all in one because the virtual is almost sort of a two-stage process where you can only really do the look on a screen and then we send them samples and sketches and swatches and so they do the feel element of it at home so that would be a shame if we see that sales channel die but we as a business of our size um and on our growth trajectory, if we have to lose that bricks and mortar as our survival plan, then that's something that we'll have to compromise on, I guess. Um, mm. But I think other businesses in our sector, for sure, are either um, have been doing the virtual or they're certainly starting to do the virtual. And I've actually started doing um, virtual workshops with other business leaders in my sector mm. um, to show them how that, how I do it and how I structure it um, because I've learned quite a lot just over the last six months of how to to make these convert these appointments into sales and obviously if, if other businesses in my sector do well then I do well too mm. because lots of these businesses are selling outfits or hats or whatever and we're the other elements of that outfit I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, Emmy, definitely. And um, I think it's one of the um, very few positives to have come out of this situation as well, that collaboration between business that we've not necessarily seen before because everybody is in the same boat. And collaboration yeah. and learning from each other during a time like this is um, absolutely huge for leadership as a whole because leadership itself is a constant process of learning, isn't it? Even when we're running our own businesses, we're never necessarily a finished product in what we do. We're never the best that we 
can possibly be. And I think a large part of running a business, particularly where a crisis like COVID-19 forces you to think very quickly and adapt to changing guidelines, changing circumstances, a lot of that in itself is very much trial and error, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think this experience, like no other, is totally levelling. So within industry, amongst leaders, and also what I found really interesting is it's between your team as well. Mm. You're all affected and you're all in the same boat. Um, But also between brands and, say, media, where there's never been this kind of very levelling, very honest, um, helping each other out, really. Um, so that has been a huge positive. Mm. And I think the businesses that are open to that sharing and um, co-learning will be the ones that survive. And just how mentally, when it sort of became clear just the scale of the COVID-19 challenge, did you sort of prepare mm. yourself to deal with it? Because mental health and well-being has certainly been thrust back into the limelight by the whole pandemic situation, not just in terms of safeguarding that of the people that you work with, but also your own as well. Because at a time like this, where leaders have really had to step up, the word, the, the, that phrase, it's lonely at the top, has never been more true, has it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think the stamina and the resilience required to lead through this pandemic is really overwhelming at times. And, you know, I have a team that rely on me um, for their well-being, but also look to me for the answers and the way to navigate through things. And, And it's been a real shift because I don't always have the answers. You know, as I said, we're all in this together. Um, I have um, realised how mentally strong I am, which is quite empowering. Um, And I have been able to help others through it, um, which has been quite rewarding. Um, But the way I have approached it is it, I have done it in very kind of staged processes. And so I've almost departmentalised different stages of, of our adjustments. I think mentally as well, to actually accept that our plan for this year and the growth that we were expecting and um, all those achievements that were completely reachable, to, to then accept that that's not going to happen and go into survival mode is a huge step. And you know, I did struggle with that, but I did make that adjustment quite quickly. Um, I run the business with my husband and he found it harder and a slower process to just accept that and move on and, and join me in the survival mode. Um, I have, uh, about a year ago, I started running um, just to kind of, you know, keep fit and stuff. But actually, I have been running every day through the pandemic and actually it's kind of saved my sanity I think because it's it's half an hour where I'm not mum I'm not Mm. leading a business I'm not dealing with the pandemic I'm literally just trying to um get round and breathe and um survive and um for me that's been my time to really process things get things into proportion and um and 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 recognize the positive in this um, because there definitely are positives mm. um, to be had. It's it's just difficult to see them all the time. 
There are, exactly right. And um, one thing I would like to uh, certainly ask um, as well, Emmy, is um, just for those younger generations of aspiring leaders that might be tuning into this and may be disheartened by the ongoing COVID-19 situation and its impact on the economy and also their employment prospects as a result, what message would you have to give them based on your experience to really pick their heads up and get them on the road to success? I think um, don't give up on your passion. Um, even if you don't secure a role that is connected directly to your passion straight away, think of it as a stepping stone in the right direction. I also feel and really strongly and encourage young people to do something amazing, whether it be charitable or fundraising or um, just being kind. When, uh, for example, when I'm interviewing for a new role and it's quite junior and I'm getting graduates in, actually, what what would really lean me towards a certain candidate is something really impressive about their character and how they've coped through the pandemic um, over, not over and above their qualifications, because that would be foolish, but as well as I would factor that in and, and just how they've contributed to um, the bigger picture. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed, Emmy, and anybody tuning in would do very, very well to heed that for sure among the younger generations. Um, I am conscious um, that our time together is beginning to draw to its close on today's programme. But just before we do wrap things up, um, I would like to talk about the future because over the uh, the next few months, at least, we know we're going to have to continue to grapple with the new normal and adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working. But over the course of the next 12 months, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Emmy London? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being this time next year? So I am, I mean, obviously my original sort of growth strategy has been totally shelved. Um, So it's very much kind of migrated into getting through, surviving, making sure that we still have a business for when the demand for our product is where it normally is at. Um, So that's pretty basic. But within that, there's quite a few challenges. Um, so my sort of message to my team is let's focus on what we're good at, get better at that, streamline our processes. We are very committed to a sustainable made-to-order model of producing. And um, we're pretty good at that and we're known for that, but we want to get better at that. We want to make that more accessible to a wider audience digitally. Um, so that's definitely something that we can focus on in the next 12 months. Um, and where I see ourselves this time next year, I see ourselves um, with a strong digital sales channel with um, per- with a personal touch that's accessible globally. Mm-hmm. And for, for us as a business and a family business and a, as a couple, I think the benefit of that will bring us freedom um, to to grow at the rate that we're comfortable with. Um, anywhere we want to be. I think it's a fantastic level of ambition amid all the uncertainty, Emmy, and I certainly do um, applaud and give that the utmost credit. And I actually think it would be wonderful at some point in this next year to catch up and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are coming along. Oh, I'd love that. Thank you so much.
I'd certainly welcome that opportunity, Emmy. It's been such a pleasure and a really enlightening experience welcoming you onto our show today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get to speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. You too. I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and consider others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Emmy Scarterfield onto today's programme, founder and creative director of Emmy London. Um, next up on today's show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords as well as Chairman of the Leaders Council and Ex-Education Secretary and he held a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth having occupied a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists 
is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said 
why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. 
in some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut 
Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS or what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? 
I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, 
a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.